as was mentioned previously, certainly a very warm welcome to each and every one, our regular membership at Pippin. We're delighted, of course, not only for ourselves, but any visitors that have come our way today. We certainly would wish and hope that it would have been good for each of us to be here, to offer our worship and reverence to the great God of heaven. Let me echo the sentiments of perhaps many others to wish a happy Father's Day to all the fathers in our audience. And certainly the element of fatherhood lifted high in the Word of God with all of its provisions, all of its obligations, and all of its duties. And certainly happy Father's Day to all those fathers again that are in our audience this, this, this very morning. Let me be very brief, if I might, though, and take just a moment and make two additional announcements. Uh, one of which is... Uh, we have a gospel meeting advertisement at the Maylane Congregation, but there is uh, two vacation Bible schools that I wanted to make mention of briefly that are not too far from, from our area. One over here at Holiday this week at the Holiday Congregation, uh, different speakers for the auditorium classes each evening. They've invited me to be the speaker for Thursday night, so I've uh, extended an invitation to any that might wish to do so to come over the holiday on Thursday evening. Uh, the lesson, interestingly enough, surrounds the topic of peacefulness in our world. So if you have opportunity, come and be with us. At least pray for that effort there at holiday this week. In addition, the Flint Creek congregation has a VBS this week. Also different speakers each night. I don't know exactly the listing of all of them. I'm not one of those speakers, but just thought I'd make a mention of that VBS there this week. This morning, as we come to consider the particular element of the book of Hebrews, as you'll notice, we've now reached our 17th lesson in this interesting study of the book of Hebrews. We have been challenged on so many levels and challenged in so many ways to appreciate the better way of Jesus. You and I live in a world that needs a better way. Our ways around us, as it's seen from the government, as it's seen from the way that people often interact with each other, often it's a mess. And yet we find in Hebrews that there is a better way. And it is the way of Christ. When that road is trodden completely, trustingly and fully, one finds the better life here. And one, of course, finds the only life hereafter. And so in this book we've seen that Christ is better than Moses, better than the prophets, better in fact than Joshua, better than the fathers of the ancient era. His gospel system has a better tabernacle. It has a better gospel era. One could go on and on with the better things highlighting the Hebrews. In the most recent lessons in our series, we have cast the spotlight on some of the important applications. Your faith and mine is better than what they had in the Old Testament because it's founded on better promises, Hebrews 8, 6. We furthermore appreciate that because of that, God, however, has high expectations for you and me. He expects us to not miss the services, Hebrews 10, 25. He expects us to live each day walking in the blessed light of the gospel of His Son. Speaking of that, that brings us to chapter 12, verse 16, which is where we find our lesson text this morning. You might have noticed Brother Cale read that for us a moment ago. The verse is relatively brief. Lest there be any fornicator among you, or any profane person, as was Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright, and immediately conjures up in our mind a host of Old Testament significances, as well as some powerful lessons for you and for me today. I would invite you to give some thought with me this morning. As 
we consider what it means to be a profane person, and let us keep clearly in our mind that this is a bad thing, namely that here, as the Hebrew writer makes note of it, lest there be any profane person. In other words, these instructions of Hebrews chapter 12 are given to you and me to the intent and to the end that you and I ought not be a profane person. What does it mean to be profane? Let's start with the definition. The meaning in Greek of that word profane literally means accessible or open. As it is employed in the New Testament, it can be used to describe things or it can be used to describe persons. If it's used to describe things, to say that they're profane means that they are godless or worldly in their nature. If it's used to describe persons or individuals, that word profane has behind it the idea of ungodly or irreligious. In other words, if an individual is described as a profane person, that person does not implant or set forth the idea of religion as God would have it be. That person has his or her pursuits elsewhere. They're interested more in worldly matters, carnal matters, things of that nature than they are in the godly characteristics of the things of the scriptures. Lest there be any profane person. Isn't it fascinating to notice the example that's used? As was Esau. Let's revisit briefly and retrace what it was that made Esau this profane person. The scripture here reminds us, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Run back in your mind all the way to Genesis 25 with me. On that occasion we find that Jacob and he, or rather we find that Isaac and his wife Rebekah had been blessed with twin boys. And these boys, as they had entered the world, were such that they were exceedingly different. Esau liked the outdoors. He liked to be a person who hunted, it would seem. And on the other hand, Jacob was a plain man, dwelling in tents, the text tells us. However, the very next verse opens up by saying, on one occasion Esau came in from a day of hunting, and he was hungry. Jacob happened to be boiling some pottage at that time, at that time. And as we read that word pottage, think with me about bowl of beans. That's basically what it was. In his hunger, we find that Esau made this decision. Jacob said, sell me your birthright and I'll give you a bowl of beans. And in his reasoning, Esau did the following. I am so hungry. What does the birthright, in fact, advantage me? What good is it to me? And so he sold it for a bowl of beans. He traded all the birthright, all that it involved, the blessings that went with it, all for a bowl of beans. We notice that on this occasion, Hebrews 12, 16, the inspired writer says he was a profane man. Notice just a few of the characteristics that follow. Esau didn't value that birthright for what it really was worth. Even though it was a very special matter, in that ancient patriarchal age, it was exceedingly vital to appreciate the value of the birthright, and he didn't. Not only that, you notice that leads one to appreciate perhaps Esau was a person who didn't value anything to the, in the way that it ought to have been valued. In the third place, is it easy to appreciate 
and he showed himself a common and worldly man, trading that which was so valuable for a bowl of beans. One meal he traded it all. Perhaps finally, can we not also notice, we find in Esau a person who desired instant satisfaction. I'm hungry now. I can't wait another 30 minutes. I want it now. In all of those ways, we find in Esau a person who's a profane man. And in that profanity, perhaps we can close it by saying, if you and I aren't careful, you and I can be profane too. We can trade what is so valuable in exchange for what is so limited, what really only provides anything for a very short amount of time. It's no wonder the Hebrew writer encourages all of us, don't you be profane like Esau was. What is it that's so valuable to us that we should turn our attention to and appreciate? The things of God are of great value indeed. When you and I open the pages of the Word of God, we find in description that which is truly of eternal importance. When it comes to buying and selling, may we never forget Proverbs 23:23. To all of us, the ancient writer said, Buy the truth and sell it not. That which you and I should regard as the most privileged and highest of possessions, buy the truth and sell it not. Also wisdom and instruction and understanding. In other words, because God's word is true, John 17, 17, we should seek not only to make access to it, but to implant it and implement it in our lives and never, ever compromise it, relinquish it, sell it, or trade it for anything. Be it popularity, be it fame, be it even material wealth. For in the end, it isn't worth it. Profanity, as we've seen in the life of Esau, reminds us some of those ultimate things are at the top. I just made the comment that if we trade that which is of God, we come out on the losing end every time. Think about Solomon as a very quick example. Here was one so wealthy. He had popularity. He was the king. He had fame. All had to submit respect to him. And not only that, he had great material possession, and yet it was he who the very person said in Ecclesiastes 2.11, all is vanity and vexation of spirit, striving after the wind. Isn't it true that he f understood on that time of his life, true what we're trying to say today? May we not be profane individuals in that regard. Jesus in Mark 8, verses 36 and 37 said, What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Who among us at judgment would like to stand up and with boldness say, I traded my soul for a larger bank account? What good will it do me then? You see, the point is, Esau made a bad decision. May you and I, we in wisdom, learn from his mistake and strive not to make that same decision. What are some ways today that individuals, in fact, make themselves profane in much the same way parallel-wise as Esau was? They trade what is so valuable in exchange for what really has no innate value at all. A bowl of beans? In a few hours he was going to be hungry again and he would then need to find himself something else to eat. 
Today, isn't it true that there are those who will trade the value of their soul for a few moments of carnal pleasure, a few moments of worldly excitement? Look at perhaps our first thing to be noted today, the consumption of alcoholic beverage. Social drinker. I'd submit to you that that person is a profound person. Look at some of the things the scriptures remind us about social drinking. First of all, the word wine, as it's found in the Word of God, occurs hundreds and hundreds of times. You and I must be very discerning as we study with intent and rightly divide the occurrences and the presentations of those verses. For example, you find in several passages, in fact many of them, wine is said to be something that's a blessing. We might start in Deuteronomy 11.14. On this occasion, we find the interesting statement that God was going to bless the children of Israel with rain, and with the coming of that rain, they'd be able to harvest corn and wine and oil. Notice wine is right there with these other things that are held up high as something that's a blessing from God. In Ecclesiastes 9, verse 7, the inspired writer reminded us, by way of commandment, go thy way, eat thy bread with joy, drink thy wine with a merry heart. That sounds like a very blessed thing, doesn't it? We each enjoy the food that God allows us to have each day, and right along with eating bread is listed drinking wine, and to do so with a merry heart, for God knoweth thy works. On those occasions, wine is a blessed thing. It is held high as something that's a gift from God and should be so appreciated. But there are other verses, as you'll see, a very small sampling, in which wine is a condemned thing. In Proverbs 20, verse 1, the inspired writer said, Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging, and whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. In Isaiah 5, verse 11, a woe is pronounced upon those who inflame themselves with wine. A woe, W-O-E, that means it's a bad thing. In Isaiah 28, verse 7, we find another very graphic description of how terrible it is in regard to those who intake wine. Again, in all three cases, it seems so strongly and so stoutly condemned. That's just a small sampling of many others that could be listed. But here's a good question for each of us. If it's true that in some verses wine is a blessing, and in other verses wine is a condemnation, how then do I know how I should view it? The Bible does not contradict itself, so how do you and I make sense of this? Perhaps Isaiah 65 verse 8 is the answer. In that verse, wine is explicitly said to be a blessing. But isn't it interesting, the wine that is a blessing is unfermented. It says that wine that's a blessing is in the grape, so it couldn't have been fermented then. I submit to you that perhaps answers it so easily. These verses in which wine is a blessing is not intoxicated. These verses in which wine is condemned, it's already that which can lead one to poor judgment. It's that which is inebriating and that which is intoxicating. And thus we see again the foolishness, the profaneness of that person who will sell his soul for a few moments of this intoxicating beverage. You'll notice as it closes, 
Let's look at some statements that amplify our understanding. What about the policy of that young man named Timothy? As we come to the New Testament in 1 Timothy chapter 5, we find verse 23 of this rather amazing text. Paul, writing to him, said, Drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. And thus, there we find a passage to which some will turn and affirm that that gives you and I a license and from God to intake any and all of the intoxicating beverage that we might prefer. For there did Paul say, use a little wine. Might I ask you to notice the fullness of the passage with me? Consider what this must be saying about Timothy. The ailment that Timothy had is not fully disclosed to us. Some kind of stomach ailment. Some kind of stomach infirmity. Apparently for some time, Timothy had been greatly bothered by and irritated by the character of his stomach ailment. But he would not take any wine. Timothy apparently was a total abstainer. It took the word of an apostle, take a little wine in a medicinal use. This does say nothing about social drinking. Each of us appreciate that when there's an upset stomach, water is usually not the best thing to be drinking. Grape juice is better. In fact, other kinds of liquids along that line are far better for an upset stomach than just plain water. We each understand how something like 7-Ups does an even better job than water. The point is, here was Timothy who would not take wine at all. And it took the word of an inspired apostle to encourage him that it's all, all right, medicinally, to use a little wine. Can we not appreciate then that this is no license for social drinking? In addition to these kind words of Paul to Timothy, what else might we say? In 1 Peter 4, verses 3 and 4, we find the inspired apostle Peter this time joining the refrain of addressing the interesting matter of the kind of lifestyle that some were leading in that day and time. In those rather famous words of Peter, he wrote, that in the days of the Gentiles, that former days in life, they walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excesses of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. We have a listing of several things that were descriptive of the life of those who lived in the ways of the Gentiles. And Peter said, you live like that before you became Christians. Notice some of the things of which they were guilty. He begins with lasciviousness, lusts. Now we get to the interesting points for our lesson this morning. Excess of wine. That word in Greek literally means to bubble over with wine. You and I would describe that as a state of total drunkenness, total intoxication. He has drunk so much he can't do anything else. Notice that's a condemned thing here. But there are two more elements in that listing. There's also mentioned revelings and banquetings. I've attempted to provide the Greek definition for both of those words. You might notice as it's listed, banquetings literally in groups simply means drinkings or a drinking party. That doesn't identify that state of what you and I would call cold inebriation. That's what we call the modern-day social drinker, and Peter condemned it. Notice also the word revelings. 
It has behind it this notion of drinking, feasts, and carousings that typically occur in the evening or at night. And that's also communion. Perhaps it's easy for us to take from that listing that this condemns far more than just a state of total wiped out with wine. The social drinker has his activity condemned as well. You and I need to learn this will make me profane to engage in such activities as this, and it'll do the same for you. In addition to those matters, look at some of the statements that we should readily recollect and remember. I don't know very many who would openly affirm that it's okay to abuse drugs. Take all the heroin you want to. Take all the cocaine you like, some perhaps might say, but again, I don't know very many that would. But might we ask, alcohol is a drug too, just like that. Ask any reputable doctor, any person, say with our federal government, who's aware of the scientific findings. Ethyl alcohol, which is the drug in, in social drink, is just as known for its drug properties as any drug in cocaine, heroin, oxycontin, you name it. And thus to defend one is to defend it all. You and I must be consistent as we appreciate that this is a drug. And it is a drug that is continuing to tear our country apart. Tens of millions of gallons of this stuff is poured out every year to our nation to be drunk, to be imbibed, to be put into our bodies. And what does it lead to? Broken homes, broken families, all kinds of accidents. That it's untold how many hours of productivity are lost on the job because a person comes in having drunk the night before. The point about all of it is, we can close this particular part of our lesson with this interesting point. What did Paul mean when he said, abstain from all appearance of evil? In 1 Thessalonians 5.22. Given the evil that comes along with social drinking, we must abstain from these. To not do so makes us profane. And in Ephesians 5.18, the inspired apostle said, Be not drunk with wine. That's a commandment. And that means to not take the first drop of it in a social way. That's the Greek thrust of the word in which used. The Greek verb is mephusko. It does not mean that state of complete and total inebriation as would be described today. It means first drop until last. Be not drunk with wine. May I submit to each of us today, in the society we live, we must be strong. We must appreciate that the error set forth in this makes a person profane and short-sighted. May we understand, be not drunk with wine, else we become profane like even Esau did, changing, trading our soul, not for a bowl of beans, but for a bottle of liquor. And we're just as bad as Esau was. But perhaps there's another element that we should consider before our time elapses this morning. The appreciation of also what else can make us a profane person. Remember, when it's idea being to lift high the things of worldliness, carnality, and the things that are far from God as opposed to godliness. What about dancing? The kind of dancing that we so frequently see in our world today. It has become popular to see it on TV, hasn't it? Many TV shows now lift high the notion of dancing. 
What should be our approach to that? Does God say anything about it? I would invite your attention as we look over the next few moments at some of what the Bible has to say about social dancing. At the bottom, perhaps we should begin by noting the word occurs 27 times in the Bible. As we look interestingly at those 27 occurrences, we could draw some conclusions about God's perspective on the matter of dancing. I would invite us to do that with some briefness. First of all, what does one discover? The word dance can well be used in situations and in passages that seem to be overwhelmingly all right. For example, in Exodus 15 verse 20, after the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea, we find the very sister of Moses, Miriam, leading the women in a dance of celebration. Their victory over the Egyptians, the Egyptians, remember, were drowned in the Dead Sea, or the Red Sea, and thus they died. And here Miriam led the women in this dance of celebration in which they honored God by virtue of their victory over the Egyptians. Notice later in Judges chapter 11, we find the daughter of Jephthah dancing upon his successful return from a military engagement against the Ammonites. Those are two instances among many others that might be listed where again it would seem that this kind of dancing was not condemned. I would submit to you it may well be something like what you and I would see today. Suppose that the team for which you're cheering enjoys victory as the moments of the clock tick away. And perhaps without thinking, you jump up and move your arms and shout, Yay! As you celebrate the victory with bodily movements, you are engaging in a type of dance. And in so doing, that celebration, that jubilation, that victory that you experience with a smile on your face, and a championship that perhaps you just won, is such that that kind of dance is much like what happened with regard to both Miriam as well as the daughter Jephthah. But that is to say that there are other verses that describe a different kind of dancing. May I ask you to turn with me and look at some of them? In Exodus 32, 19, we find on that occasion the children of Israel are at the base of Mount Sinai, and a golden calf has been constructed. As they are dancing around that golden calf, we find that what they are doing is overwhelmingly condemned. Moses comes down from the mountain. The tables that he's carrying are broken by him as he casts them down in anger and in fury over what he sees these people doing. They not only are engaging in idolatry, worshiping the golden calf, they are dancing one with another in a kind of way that is very wrong. Consider Matthew 14, verse 6, in the heart of Matthew's gospel account. We find on this occasion that there is an interesting situation that arises. There is a man named Herod, who, as we remember, reigns in kingship over that part of Judea. And as he does so, we find that there is a woman that dances before him. She is the daughter of Herodias. She is Salome by name. And as she dances before Herod, this kind of dance is sensual, voluptuous. 
seductive sexual exhortation, and so arousing of here it is yet that he promises her even to the half of his kingdom. This kind of dancing, you see, aroused him to the point that one could only wonder what would have happened if she'd actually gone into a quiet room with him. We begin to see something of what Nancy can accomplish in the mind of those that watch it, and in the mind of those who witness this kind of dancing. In fairness, one might, of course, in those very regards notice that that dancing that we referenced in Exodus 32 was between men and women. It was a mixed variety of dancing. And some of those other places in the later prophets describe a similar situation. Perhaps it would be well for us to look at this a bit more carefully. What is God saying about this dancing? Near the bottom of that slide, I have several points that God would wish us to note. Look with me, first of all, at this notion of lust. The word lust, by its very definition, means eagerness or intense longing as it relates to a craving. And some of the passages in which it appears are exceedingly sensual in their nature. For instance, that one in Matthew 14, 6. Here was a woman who, of course, had been prodded and prompted by her mother. And as she aroused and excited here by her dancing, you'll notice again he promised her, even in the head of his kingdom, but upon the advice of her mother, she only wanted one thing. Give me the head of John the Baptist. And she got it. You notice that this kind of dance had been so seductive toward Herod that it led to what she needed and what she wanted by advice of her mother. If you think about the lust involved in that situation, where do you and I stand today on our participation in any activity that arouses ourselves or others in a way like that? In Titus 2, verses 11 and 12, a passage familiar to each of us, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. We've already read enough. The point is, the grace of God teaches us something. It teaches us we must deny worldly lusts. Things like what she did before Herod, the faults that were running through Herod's mind, should be far removed from any person desirous of pleasing God. In 1 Peter 2.11, listen to the strength of this passage. Abstain from all fleshly lusts. How much plainer could that have been? A verb that has behind it all the force and thrust of complete avoidance of. Abstaining from all fleshly lusts. However, that's not all. You'll notice in 2 Timothy 2.22, as Paul wrote to Timothy, who again was far younger than he, he gave him the sage advice. I understand that the younger generation are probably those more tempted in regard to dancing. But listen to this. But flee youthful lusts. Timothy, if you're going to be the kind of example that you need to be, if you're going to encourage others to follow the pathway that leads to heaven, if you're going to live a life of nobility, piety, godliness, and religious character, you need to flee religious, or rather flee youthful lusts. Isn't it 
amazing to hear Paul make a statement like that. Flee youthful lusts. And interestingly to that very same writer, he would say, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in purity, in faith, in spirit. Might I ask each of us to notice, Timothy, you're supposed to be an example. You are supposed to be an example, not only in the way you live, but in purity. What would it say about an individual striving to be a young Christian boy or girl who would perhaps step onto that dance floor, whether they'd been, in fact, allowed to do so by their parents or not, but to step onto that floor knowing that those are watching, those gyrations of the body, those movements of the body, those kinds of activities that take place, all that just leads us to the next thought. What about this matter of lasciviousness as it relates to dancing? I'd include a definition from a person who is a Greek lexicographer. So a person who we would expect, having done study and research in the Greek, would know more thoroughly and carefully about that language. Notice that the word lascivious means wanton manners, having reference to indecent bodily movements, unchaste handling of males and females. When that boy and girl, that man, that man and woman, if you will, move around on the dance floor, rubbing against one another, doing so in such a fashion to notice again unchaste handling, and that word chaste has behind it the notion of modest, and so this would be an immodest handling, an inappropriate handling of males and females. Of course, the danger with this lasciviousness is this. It will do your soul. In Galatians 5, verses 19 to 21, the inspired apostle gave a listing of what's called the works of the flesh. All we need to do is note the first four elements of the list. He says, Now these are the works of the flesh which are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, and lasciviousness. Lasciviousness, you see, is a work of the flesh. And what's the point, Paul? If we go to the end of the passage, he says, that they which commit such things shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you can't go to heaven. You cannot enjoy the favor of God and be lascivious in nature. And yet, by its definition, dancing is lascivious, following the pattern of what we've just seen. Now again, this is that kind of dancing that's not the celebration after a victory. This is that other kind of mixed dancing that was condemned in Exodus 32 and also set before us so sensuously in Matthew 14. But perhaps one final thought. What about one's influence in terms of dancing? One's influence set before others. We just noted a moment ago, Timothy was to be an example in the way he lived, what he said, where he went, what he did. All of that was to be an example to others. In those regards, consider 1 Corinthians 8.13. Even Paul, as he made note of his life, though he didn't specifically there make mention of dancing, he did say this, If it caused my brother to stumble, I'll eat no meat. He was willing to forego the eating of various kinds of things. If that led others to stumble, if it put before them a stumbling block and caused them to eternally be lost. 
I'd submitted if dancing were to cause someone to stumble. And at this point, let me say, what often occurs in regard to dancing? It usually takes place in a rather darkened room. Even though there may be chaperones there, they don't know what's going on in the mind of a single person that's there. Human beings can't read the minds of others. What if there are impure thoughts racing through the minds of that boy and girl who are rubbing up against one another dancing? And what is to say that will take place after the dance is over later that night? Chaperones have no control over that at all. The point is, we appreciate that this is not an activity that lifts high the matters of godliness. And the whole matter of this life is to fear God and keep His commandments. It is not about the pursuit of this which is carnal in character, a few moments of sensual pleasure. And notice, we make ourselves profane because we're trading the value of our soul for it. We should be wiser than that. We should lift high the banner of holiness and godliness. And might we be so direct as to say, in regard to quite often this dancing that takes place today, those thoughts that run through the mind of one dancing should be reserved only for your marriage partner. They should be the only person thinking about you or me that way. That kind of sensual thought in which things run through the mind, again, that's for your marriage partner only to see you and think about you that way. And yet, that's often what's lifted so high in our society in which we live. It's a tragedy. It's a sadness. It's a profanity. Hebrews 12, 16 today is set before us Esau, but Esau can teach us many things about both social drinking and dancing. As we close our lesson this morning, may we understand that these lessons have brought us to this point. Esau was a shallow man trading all the glory that we were the birthright for a bowl of beans. And yet today, there are many who are trading all of eternity in their soul for things like a bottle of liquor and a few minutes on the dance floor. Both simply ought not be, and God teaches us better than this. May we thus lift high the banner of righteousness, piety, and holiness, and live in a way that God would in fact approve that which we do, and that others will be brought to the Master by the example of our life. Today, if you're not a Christian, why not become one? You notice that in these, the world might look down upon these and say, well, I can't do so many things if I'm a Christian. Friend, friend. God opens up for you an eternity of bliss and life and peace that you can never, ever know apart from the Savior. To give up these is nothing. You appreciate that these are the devil's tools, not Christ's. Christ has tools of encouragement, fortitude, faith, salvation, glory, honesty, and a life of which you can be proud, and a name that will mean something. You and I should desire to live a good name, Proverbs 22.1, that others can look on and appreciate, finally I can be like her or him. Today, if you find yourself in need of obedience to the gospel, realize that that will make you not a profane person if you will implement the things of the Bible in your life. You will value what is truly valuable, and you will shun aside from that which is sinful. 
a song of encouragement has been selected. If we could be of help to one another, either in the dedication of your life by prayer or by assisting you in baptism, we'd be honored and happy to help in either of those ways. Won't you let us know if we can do that? Well, together we stand and while we sing.